Well, good morning everybody and welcome to this uh, pre-recorded service for the 29th of November 2020 for Calvary Church here in Brighton. And at the moment we're just on the edge of lockdown two. So this is a meeting by YouTube and Zoom. We are planning to have some limited meetings and we'll try the first of these on December the 13th in the evening. Don't want to raise expectations too high. There will be many limitations, but we're going to start as uh, God helps us to be meeting together with a live stream option for those who can't come. So just let me say the usual introduction, whether you are regular or dropping in, you're most welcome. If you're dropping in, uh, let me say that uh, we're a church of about 70 to 80 people meeting normally on a Sunday morning in the UK, in the seaside town of Brighton, on the coast directly south of London. My name's Philip Wells, I'm an elder at the church here, and uh, I'm leading this morning. The thing that we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to continue looking into Hebrews. We've sort of sidestepped to go into Leviticus, to go back to where Hebrews gets its thoughts from and its basic ideas from. And uh, we're going to continue to do that this morning, uh, looking at the way Christ's death on the cross deals with sin and fulfils the things so vividly depicted in the Old Testament. So the plan there is uh, on the screen, uh, up just above my head, and let's pray as we go forward. Lord, you have said that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Please do so. You have said that you are to your people a shepherd, a friend, a redeemer, a rock. Please may we find, as we draw near to you, that you are all those things and much more. Please be with us in this time, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, we're going to start with the reading of a psalm. And this is a psalm of David. It's Psalm 51. So I'll give you a moment to find that because I'm going to read the whole thing. It'd be great if you could follow along. And when we've read it, we're going to sing a version of that psalm, Have mercy, Lord, as you promise, which is back from youth praise originally, if any of you are old enough to remember youth praise. Well, let's read Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you judge and when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there is David speaking from the depths of his heart of the plea for God to deal with his sin, in, in particular to wash it, to cleanse him, and the joy of having sins cleansed and sins forgiven. He says a lot about that. Well, we're going to sing a version of that. It's Psalm 51. Have mercy, Lord, as you promise. pray and uh, the prayer the Lord's Prayer is up on the screen we'll say the Lord's Prayer when we've finished praying this prayer let's pray together Lord we like David are sinners we have sin in our hearts and as we come to you we want to turn from sin to you we confess to you that we don't hate sin as we should. Sometimes we love sin and we cling to it and we ask you, like the psalmist did, to turn us from our sins. We sometimes are very 
disgusted by our sin and are conscious that it needs cleansing. And we thank you that as, you, as we come to you, you are able to cleanse us from sin. You are able to wash us whiter than snow. And we thank you for the preciousness of sins being taken away, being washed and being made clean as David longed for and prayed for. And may that be our experience. May we not fail in that. May we not be superficial. May we not be hypocritical. But may we truly, may we be truly Christian people in that regard. So we come confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness from you. We come asking that we might praise you as we know the joy of sins forgiven, as we know the wonder of of what it is to have such a gracious God as our God, as we see you in your majesty holding all things uh, in your hands and welcoming us into your presence. Help us to be people of joy and praise and thanksgiving. We come to thank you for every mercy you've shown to us. Lord, we're sometimes very conscious of uh, the restrictions, particularly at this time of uh, the virus, and uh, and yet we have so much to thank you for, for the measure of health that you've given us, the measure of strength you've given us, the measure of comfort you've given us, and in particular to know that we are your people, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Help us to lift up our eyes to see your grandeur and your greatness, your sovereignty, your glory, your majesty. And help us as we come this, uh, this morning, we come to pray, and to pray for the advancement of your kingdom. Pray that your kingdom might be advanced within us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our, the way we live, in our, the way we speak, in the way we think about things, in the things that we long for and work for, in the things that we turn away from. May you be glorified, Lord. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. O oh Lord, we pray that uh, your kingdom will advance in, in our church here, but across the world and across the nation. May men and women and boys and girls turn to you. May be, you be honoured and uplifted. And even in our little corner of your kingdom, here in Brighton and Hove, we think of our brothers and sisters at New Life Moolscombe, at Park Hill Evangelical Church and at Ebenezer Reformed Baptist Church and the embryonic church plant starting in a year or so's time. Please, Lord, in all these things, may you be greatly honoured. May you be pleased to advance your kingdom through your servants, such as we are, and uh, bring glory to your holy name. So we bring our prayers to you and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And let's say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again now. We're going to sing this song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, because the Lord is to us a rock and a redeemer. And this song says, one of the lines says, You broke my bonds of sin and shame. And that's what redemption does. The Redeemer breaks the bonds of sin and shame. Of my love. 
have our Semmer's reading again and this is Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 14 and this is the bit uh, just remind us that it says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are out ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Sins forgiven and conscience cleansed. Thank you for reading our sermon. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, 
Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into their most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and most perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained external redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. And having heard God's word, let's sing again looking this time not backwards at the Old Testament sacrifices, but back to the cross on which Christ died. It's uh, 415, come and see, come and see the King of love, see the purple robe and crown of thorn he wears. Come and weep, come and mourn for your sin that pierced him there, so much deeper than the wounds of thorn and nail, all our pride, all our greed, all our fallenness and shame and the Lord has laid the punishment on him. It's number 415. And after this, we will uh, switch over to having our talk. Father 
come to look at God's word let's pray together Lord in heaven we come to your word you have told us so much about your word that it builds us up reveals our sin shows us the saviour you deal with us by your word and we pray that you would make good on that promise and on all those statements even as we think about your word just now will you surprise us with the relevance and power of the things that you say in the Bible to us today. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, we're going to continue looking into um, Hebrews via Leviticus, and I'm going to start where I start, started last time, with this idea of stain. Our moral and spiritual failures do something to us that can rightly be described as staining or to be sullied, to, to stain and put a, a, um, dirt, as it were, on our lives, making us feel dirty. And uh, there's a picture of a stain remover um, 
a literal stain remover. And again, I say that this is actually so close to human experience that if you honestly going to say, I, I don't feel any of those things, then the rest of this, uh, these few minutes will be pointless for you. Fast forward to the closing prayer, please. What the Christian message offers is what you might call a spiritual stain remover. And that is such an important dimension to the work of Jesus that it's very well worth stopping and looking at it again. And let's remind ourselves of the centrality of this in God's agenda. So I'm just finding Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, where it says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And you notice that in that significant outset of the letter, the work of Jesus Christ is described as a stain-removing work. He had provided purification for sins. Now, we're used to thinking of Jesus' death as a legal act in the realm of a courtroom where there are people who are guilty and not guilty and Jesus pays the penalty for our sins, for our crimes in um, a judicial category. That's the, We think of it like a courtroom. But that is certainly not the only way of appreciating his mighty work. And in Hebrews, as we've just read, Jesus' death is seen is to be seen as the cleansing for the uncleanness of sin. So that's what we're going to think about. I have to say it's, it's a much less familiar way of thinking about Jesus Christ and his death. But I hope, I hope that the Lord will help us to get some sort of grasp on this and it to get some sort of grasp on us. And the way I'm going to do it as best I can is to skim some lessons off the surface of Leviticus. Now the world of Leviticus, we dipped into it last week, is very different to our own. It's a world of priests and camps and uh, animal slaughter and on the way to the promised lands. It's a strange world. And we might come to it and say, well, why are some things clean and un other things unclean? Why is it unclean to uh, have childbirth? That's supposed to be good, isn't it? Why are some animals unclean? Well, questions. And then the sacrificial system. Well, what's the significance of all that? All this blood and oil and washing and, and putting blood in different places. And there's a question again, what does it all mean? And perhaps a more pertinent question to those people, can you live under that system? What does it do to you if day after day you're thinking, this is clean, that's unclean, oh dear, I've involved inadvertently in some uncleanness now, the rest of the day I've got to spend at home or whatever. It's a bit, a little bit like being under our virus restrictions, isn't it? It does something to you. And as Christians, we look at this and we say, what does it have to do with us? What can we learn from it? What are we meant to learn from it? And perhaps the even more significant question, what does it have to do with Jesus? And at the outset, I will say, all the things we look at in Leviticus point to Jesus. And Jesus is the real thing. And the things in Leviticus are symbols, if you like, shadows cast by the reality of Jesus, and they're meant to point forward to him as the real thing. So I'm going to skim some lessons off the surface of Leviticus. This is a very broad brush, and I have to say I feel quite inexpert at this. This is not familiar territory. So here, is, uh, here are the lessons. Number one, 
sin is more difficult to fix than you think, uh, from chapters 1 to 7. 2. You need a qualified agent to step in to deal with sin, chapters 8 to 10. Third point about sin. It's many things. It's ugly, disgusting, repellent, contagious, polluting, parasitic, unnatural, from chapters 11 to 15 and chapter 18. And fourth point, uh, final point for, for this time, there is a day to deal with sin. There is a day. You could write a song with that title, couldn't you? And uh, point five, this is incomplete. We haven't even got all the way through Leviticus, but I hope this will make sense to us this morning and, and help us spiritually. And uh, I just say there's so much more to be said. I'll say as best as I can. So number one, sin is more difficult to fix than you think. I'll give you a minute to find Leviticus and to find the uh, at the beginning, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as an offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. So we're straight in and the Lord is speaking about offerings. And my point from these first seven chapters, because these are all to do with the offerings. I'm not going to go into them in detail at all, but just say the seven chapters of it there. Jesus' sacrifice is the real thing, but it takes seven chapters of versions to point in any adequate sense to the real thing. So that we notice, you see, there is not just one Old Testament sacrifice, but there are many, and it takes many to begin to point adequately to Jesus. Now, what are these sacrifices? Well, they have different names in English. The, uh, in, um, in Hebrew, the Ola, the burnt offering. That's the one that totally goes up to God. It's a very expensive and costly offering. Then there is the, uh, in, um, in Hebrew, Minha. Uh, it's translated as the grain offering. But it, it's the offering with the word that means a gift or a tribute. And then there is the peace offering. Where's the peace offering? Or the fellowship offering, chapter 3, verse 1, a fellowship offering. The translation of these things is a little bit unreliable, isn't it? But the, the, the shalem is a little bit like shalom, isn't it? The peace offering. And then the sin offering. Where's the sin offering? In chapter 6, Verse 24, these are the regulations for the sin offering. Uh, Hebrew, I believe, hatat, from the, the word for sin, hata'ah. Who knows whether I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I just want us to notice that the words are very close. So it's a sin thing. It's sort of one word derived from another. And my point is simply this, without going into any further detail, this teaches, surely, that sin needs dealing with on a number of different fronts. It's more complicated than we think. Sin has more, creates more problems than we think. And resolving the matter of sin takes place on more different angles than we think. In other words, if we thought our sin was simple and easy, then we should really think again. There's something characteristic of sin that it deceives. And uh, we need to be wise about this. Uh, our sin deceives us. It cloaks itself. It disguises itself as something else. It burrows underneath things. It gets uh, inside. Sin is more difficult to fix than you think. Which ought to make us all the more grateful to Jesus. Because he didn't have to die in six or seven different methods. He did it all in one go. What Jesus accomplished in one offering is bigger and could be encapsulated in just one offering here. He, he did it all. These various different forms of sacrifice, he covered them all. And uh, isn't he brilliant? Every single 
aspect of sin is fulfilled, sorry, every, every aspect of dealing with sin that these different sacrifices point to is fulfilled in just the one offering that Jesus made, sort of a multi-dimensional solution that Jesus brought. Well, amen. We should worship him. Even if we don't understand what these different dimensions were, we can say, thank you, Lord. We may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. Number one, sin is more difficult to fix than you think. Seven chapters of that. Number two, you need a qualified agent to step in. And I'm thinking now of uh, chapters eight and onwards. And just to say, this is serious stuff. Uh, we're a little bit at, at arm's length from this, aren't we? We think of priests as pictures in books, but uh, they were real-life priests, and uh, they had a serious job to do, just as a trivial sort of example. Uh, we've had some plastering done in our house, and we had it done by a very professional plasterer. Before we got him in to do it, I had to go myself. How, how hard can it be? Watch a couple of YouTube videos. They make it sound so easy. It just takes them about four minutes, 50 seconds. They've plastered a ceiling or a wall, and you think, I could do that. Well, I'll let you into a secret that it's not as easy as it looks. Plastering, writing a will, being doing something legal. I mean, how hard can that be? You can get something from Smith's, can't you, that just you just fill it in. Well, you know, I wonder whether... You actually need somebody who knows what they're doing. And in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's sons, they thought, well, anybody can do this any old way. They took their censers, put fire in them, added incense, and did it in a way that they thought was okay. They offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And I think if we'd been there, we would have gasped. Uh, is it really as difficult and dangerous as that? If you get it wrong, does it really mean death? Well, apparently it does. So you do know, need somebody who knows what they're doing. And in chapter 8, there is the ordination of Aaron and his sons as the qualified agent, the priest, the person who steps in between the Lord and his people to bring them together, to make sacrifices, to, uh, to, to work all the system. You need somebody to step in and do this, a third party, a priest. And if you just look at chapter 8, verse 1, it says... The Lord said to Moses, again, the Lord spoke, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, the basket containing bread weight made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And, the Lord, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. And without going any further, you can see there's a lot involved, isn't there? There's clothes to be sorted out. A very special uniform, sort of almost like um, a royal regalia. The anointing oil, so this is going to play a role in um, qualifying and preparing the priests. Uh, a bull for the hatat, the sin offering, hatat, is it? Uh, and that's not enough, you need two rams and you need bread. So there's a whole lot of things going on here. And if you just cast your eyes over it, you can see it's, it's a massive task. And this is the entry level. This is, this is not the real thing. This is the entry level showing what's involved. How much more respect we should have for Jesus and his preparation and his qualification and his competence. Uh, he stepped in, perfected, as Hebrews would tell us, having been through the training, having learnt everything, having been prepared and being absolutely ready, spotlessly, purely, obediently to sacrifice himself. And surely we, we want to thank him for that. 
and worship him. And as a little footnote, how, if it's as difficult as that to get somebody to step in for us. How would anybody dare to be without such a priest? How would anybody dare to come to God just on their own, you know, as the amateur plasterer or as the amateur legal expert, uh, the amateur person who comes to God to uh, make arrangements for their own salvation? Would anybody dare do that? Shouldn't we put that into the hands of somebody suitably qualified? And Jesus is excellently qualified, excellently qualified. So that was point two. You need somebody qualified to step in, just picking these things, skimming them off the surface of the book of Leviticus. And now let's skim some things off the surface about sin. And I'm thinking of chapters 11, 12, 13, 14... 15, all to do with regulations for cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say sin is ugly, disgusting, repellent, dangerous, polluting, parasitic and natural. So I'm going to say those things and let's just do them one at a time fairly quickly. It's ugly, disgusting and repellent. Please turn to... Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 12. I know I've gone outside Leviticus but it's all part of the same thing. This says, designate a place outside the camp where you can go to re relieve yourself. As part of your equipment have something to dig with and when you relieve yourself dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see anything among you indecent and turn away from you. God's holy response to uncleanness is like our response to people using the street as a toilet. Now, I know some residents in the area uh, and where they live people do use the street as a toilet and it, they find it disgusting and abhorrent and unacceptable. And we learn here that that is a sort of visual picture for us because we, I mean, we all get that idea. That's how God in his holiness responds to our sin. It's a horrible ugly, disgusting, repellent thing, which makes him want to think whether he'll move away and go somewhere else, if you see what I mean. And uh, now, strangely and wonderfully, God's sin does not, sorry, our sin does not repel God so that he leaves us. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But something amazing takes place that that should be the case. Uh, and uh, But sin is sin. And it makes me think, do you think we're rather insensitive to our own sin? Do you think we just think it's okay and God isn't that bothered about it? Well, he thinks it's like having a street full of poo. An uncleansed sin, according to this uh, um, text, has this effect to make God to withdraw uh, he moves about your camp to protect you and deliver you uh, and deliver your enemies to you. And, and he will not do that if he sees unclean things. It will make God turn away so that he does not turn away from you. It's inclined to make him turn away, but he doesn't. Uh, or to break out in fire, as he did with Nadab and Abihu. So this is God's reaction to sin. And we learn that sin is in itself ugly, disgusting and repellent. Another thing we learn is that it's dangerous. And again, without going into detail, when animals are substituted in the place of the sinner, what happens to them? Well, they get cut up and burnt, typically. They get cut up and burnt. They get turned into smoke, turned into a, uh, a smell that goes up to God where... 
uh, which he finds acceptable. Um, just think about the cherubim with the fiery sword guarding the way back to Eden as Adam and Eve were expelled. I've just been thinking, what, what happens when you have a fiery sword? What does it do? I think the answer is it cuts people up and burns them. And if you try and get back into the presence of God via the cherubim, you get cut up and burnt. But here an animal gets cut up and burnt for us, uh, a substitute, and therefore we can go in. Dangerous. Polluting. Pollution is something that our society does understand. In the Levitical system there would be the word to profane, to defile, which is not that far from the idea of polluting. So we have uh, pollution, so air pollution, nitrous oxide, uh, particle sizes, um, somebody around, lives around here is quite an expert in polluted air. Apparently wood burning stoves produce more pollution than cars do, or something like that, don't quote me on it. Uh, we all have a horror now of a polluted sea with bits of plastic in it. And we would be appalled at the idea of having polluted water. Something came out of our taps mixed with um, something that you wouldn't want to drink. Pollution. So we, we're repelled by that thought. But sin is of this nature. We're to think of sin as producing uncleanness and polluting human life and society. Sin is dangerous and it's polluting. And sin is parasitic. I think that would be a fair way of talking about Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 33. I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy. Leviticus chapter 14 verse 33, where it talks about mildew when you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have something that looks like mildew in my house. Um, mildew is a sort of fungal thing that grows on the brickwork or on something damp. Uh, you get um, mildew in, in damp corners of a cupboard or something like that. I think that's the idea of it. It's growing. It shouldn't be there. It's feeding off something good and producing something nasty. Feeds off something wholesome and spoils it. Sin has a parasitic character. I think this is a fair deduction from this. Do you remember somebody once said or thought that something was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable to make one wise. Those are all good things, aren't they? Good for food, that's good. Wholesome. Pleasing to the eye, what can be wrong with that? That's wholesome. Desirable to make one wise, that's wholesome. But sin sort of feeds on that and distorts that. That was Eve, wasn't it? Taking the apple. Uh, not the apple, the fruit. Sin is parasitic. Sin is natural. And I'm now just skimming something off chapter 18, where it says, right at the beginning, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then there's the list of um, uh, sexual relations that are not to be entered into. But it's prefaced by saying, don't do it like they do in Egypt. Don't do like they do in Canaan. These are the nations that go their own way. They do what comes naturally. And sin has this sense that it, it, it's something that people think is natural. Um, David Wells, the writer, no relation, uh, said somewhere that uh, it is this world makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem odd. That's the world we live in. It's always telling us that sin is normal 
and that righteousness is odd. And we need the Bible to put us back the right way round. We need Holy Scripture to teach us that uh, it's sin that's wrong, righteousness that's right. So sin is parasitic and it's natural. Well, some things there about sin. And the fourth thing, off the surface of the text, there is a day. Yes, it would be a good title for a song, wouldn't it? I'm thinking of Leviticus 16, where there is a day, actually a day of atonement. That's what it's called in translation. Uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. To atone, uh, in English meaning at one, to make two different parties at one together. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, it's usually thought that Kippur is to do with covering, a day of covering, a day of covering for sin. And this word always used to make me a little bit uneasy, uh, to cover over. It, it can be used to mean you don't actually deal with it properly, you just cover over it. So there's an expression to paper over the cracks, meaning that if you've got a wall with cracks in it, uh, you can put wallpaper over it and you don't actually deal with the cracks, you just make it so that they don't show. And that is not what is meant by covering when God covers sin. He doesn't cover it over in some inadequate way. It's more like to cover in the sense of uh, cover the bill or cover the expenses. You know, So you go for a, uh, a meal and it costs 80 quid and somebody produces a cheque for £1,000 and says, well, this ought to cover it. Uh, is that sort of covering. God covers the problem of sin on the day of covering, the day of atonement. And here in uh, Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement. You can read it in detail if you like. But on this day, huge effort is made to deal with the whole matter of, this, of sin for, you know, lock, stock and barrel, and it's a complicated day, it's a very special day, uh, and, and a lot of effort is made on that day. And there is a but. But. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because it has to be repeated again and again and again, year by year by year by year by year. And that repetition is admission of failure. It's a bit like painting the fourth bridge. You start at one end, get all the way to the other end, then you have to go back again and paint it all over again because the painting was just a temporary fix. It doesn't solve the real problem. And likewise, the day of covering, the day of atonement in this Levitical system doesn't work. It just shows what needs to be done but doesn't manage to do it. As Christians, we can look and say, actually, there was a day. There was a day, a single day, when in a matter of hours something was transacted which puts all the Levitical stuff into the shade. Because all, what all the Levitical stuff tried to do but couldn't manage was achieved on that single day. And the man upon the cross, for that was what happened on that single day. The man upon the cross cried out at the end of his hours of suffering. Finished. Done it. I've put the word all there because that's the implication, isn't it? It's all finished. Nothing left undone. No aspects untouched no depths unplumbed, no complications covered over as you would cover over, paving over the cracks, but the whole thing dealt with. Isaiah 66 verse 8 says, Can a country be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth in a day? Could, could one single day achieve all that? Mm, apparently yes. Zechariah 13 verse 1 says, On that day... A fountain will be opened to the house of David to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And on that day, a fountain was opened, powerful and effective, 
to cleanse all his people from sin and uncleanness and impurity and stain. He did it. And one, uh, just quote that song which says, Hallelujah, what a saviour. He did it all. Well, there we are. I've tried to skim some lessons just off the surface of Leviticus. I did it with a very broad brush and I wouldn't claim that it was very much beyond beginner level actually. But what did we cover? We covered this. Number one, sin is more difficult to fix than you think. It takes a lot. Jesus did it all. Number two, you need a qualified agent to step in. You wouldn't dream of doing this yourself. You need a priest, a go-between, an advocate, a mediator. And Jesus is excellent at that. And then we thought thirdly, of all the awfulness of sin, it's ugly, disgusting, repellent, dangerous, contagious, polluting, parasitic and natural. That's what what beings dealt with and we ought to have our eyes open to that. Jesus is able to deal with that. And fourthly, there is a day to deal with sin. A day not like the Day of Atonement, which was constantly repeated, but one day in which Jesus fixed it all. Isn't Jesus impressive? Well, we've heard God's word as sin is described to us and as the cross is described to us. And we're going to close with this uh, song from uh, Town and Getty. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Wonderful song describing the horrid, horrible nature of the cross, but the awesome power that there was there when Christ died. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead erased to life, finished the victory cry. Let's sing, O to see the dawn of the darkest day.
Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through your selfless love, this the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's close in prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, it's uh, that's it from me, and uh, until we meet again, I'll say goodbye. Bye-bye just now. Bye.